Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Right to Read Initiative. My name is Dr. Katherine Garforth from Garforth Education, and I am pleased to welcome back Jennifer Jacobson. She is from Demystifying Dyslexia, and she is a teacher. Today, we're going to be talking about her strategies and what she does in her classroom to make sure that all students are getting access to the Right to Read. Thank you for joining me again today, Jennifer. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me again. It's so exciting. Wonderful. So if you haven't had a chance, do tune in to the last episode of the Right to Read Initiative in order to get Jennifer's backstory. But as an overview, she was a teacher who uh, had her training in the whole world, or sorry, the whole world, the whole <laughs> word um and whole language background and discovered that what she was taught in school wasn't enough to teach all students so through a journey discovered how to do this and you help advocate for individuals as well as support the development in educators uh, and their ability to teach students so let's start out with what you think that every teacher should know and understand about individuals with a specific learning disorder, such as dyslexia. So the first thing I would say that they need to know and understand is that those students learn differently. Their, mm -hmm. their brains are functioning differently than typical, um, than someone without dyslexia. And so they need to just understand that they have to teach differently in order for those students to master the reading skills that they're being taught. Yeah. And, you know, we know that through, you know, the cognitive neuroscience, especially by the work of the doc of Dr. Stanislas Dehane, that, you know, poor readers approach reading differently than skilled readers and unfortunately with the various instructional strategies that have been in vogue for the past couple of decades they are not supporting students in developing into skilled readers we're actually teaching strategies that weak readers already use mm -hmm. and making that shift and as a dyslexic myself I can recognize and understand that, you know, from personal experience, not all educators really have a true understanding. And even the ones that think you do, they do uh, aren't always flexible enough in their thinking to realize what's worked for one individual with dyslexia may not work for all individuals with dyslexia. And I know, you know, you often hear this with individuals who have ADHD or autism, like when you've met one person with dyslexia, you've met one person with dyslexia. And uh, I have a sister who is also severely dyslexic. And what I've always used as an analogy is, you know, we have the same genetic genes, but if we went to the store and bought the same, you know, had one pair of jeans, how they fit me is not gonna be the way that they fit her. We're, we're different sizes and have different needs. And it's, 
that's just something as simple as a pair of pants. When we're talking about a complex cognitive process, such as reading, especially in, with the English language where it's orthographically complex, we need to take various things into consideration. So do you have like a, a top five tips or you know, the things, your go-tos when you're first talking to a teacher that's wanting to learn more? Sure. There's, I, you know, first and foremost, the teacher needs to be open to suggestions. And so, you know, my number one, not my number one, but my first strategy would be for the teacher to just acknowledge that they are a great teacher. They are doing fantastic, fantastic things in the classroom Mm -hmm. And, but the students, some of the students that are struggling to learn to read, mm -hmm. they just need a different approach to teaching than a teacher standing, you know, at the board, um, lecturing and the student sitting there working on a worksheet or taking notes or something like that. So the first thing is that teachers need to become informed themselves and, I'm not saying that they need to take college classes again to earn certifications, but they need to be open to, to different techniques that they can use in the classroom. And a lot of teachers I talk with, they tell me, well, I don't have time, or I've been doing this for years. Why do I need to change now? And my answer to them is that you know, research is is changing and we're learning more and more about education as a whole. And mm -hmm. researchers are finding vital, important information to help teachers. And the techniques that I advise teachers to work with, they're not hard. They're not real time consuming. It's just the teacher needs to be open um, to 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 use them. And I always challenge teachers just to try one little thing and see how it goes, see how you feel teaching it, see how your students do learning that way, and then add on. Because when you look at structured literacy as a whole, which is what I teach with, um, it, it can be overwhelming. It can be complex. There's many pieces to it. And so I don't blame teachers for you know, backing away from it, thinking, okay, I can't learn one more curriculum. I, I can't, I don't have time for this. Um, but that's a good thing about structural literacy is it's not a curriculum. It's just a um, approach that can be interwoven into what teachers are already teaching. So that'd be my first piece of advice. Um, the second is multi-sensory. The key to teaching students with dyslexia and other disabilities is teaching with a multi-sensory approach. And that means that you're including all senses or as many senses as you can in one activity. So for example, if you have students using, um, one of my favorite activities my students use are wiki sticks, which are really thin pieces of wax that you can easily manipulate into letters and shapes and things like that is, um, I lost my, I lost my train of thought. So the using the wiki sticks, multi-sensory. Okay. There we go. Sorry. Um, so they are not only seeing what they're doing, 
but they are using their hands. So they're touching, they're manipulating what they're doing. And then I go further and have the students use their finger to trace over the letters or the words that they have created as they say the sounds. So then they're speaking, they're hearing what they're saying, they're feeling what they're um, saying. And so it just brings into a lot of of their senses at one time into an activity. And so that's another key is involving the whole, the whole body, the whole um, sensory system. Students with, especially with dyslexia, they learn in pictures. And so a third strategy that I recommend for teachers to use is mnemonics with pictures. And mnemonics are, um, like if you're trying to remember the colors of the rainbow, the famous one is Roy G. Biv to remember what colors, you know, go in order and of the rainbow. So one of the ones, <clears throat> excuse me, that I created was for the word because, and that's a very difficult word for, you know, students to learn how to spell, <clears throat> excuse me. So I made a visual with pictures and the saying is bears eat canned ants under scrambled eggs. And so I have pictures, I have the the, the spelling of because, mm -hmm. and then I have the words, you know, bears eat, can, you know, I have that. Um, so they can see that. And we also do some um, acting like with our bodies. So like, you know, bears, you know, can eat, um, you know, so doing some actions with our bodies also help. So mnemonics is, um, you know, a great way because, like I said, students with dyslexia learn more on the right side of their brain, which composes the creative side, the visual side. And if, if teachers can hone in on that, then they're going to have much more success. Um, the yeah, fourth just oh, before we move on to number four, mnemonics are, you know, a strategy that are excellent to be employed for even, you know, any student. I, of course. Uh, you know, there's the, my very elegant mother just sat upon needles of the porcupine yes. for the order of the planets from the sun. Um, and there are, there are two mnemonics that I, so I remember this, I made in grade eight because I really struggled spelling the word August and it was all umbrellas go up streets at times. Okay. And then I was working with with a five-year-old and this kid had really struggled with because because most do. Yes. And instead of giving him one, he was really creative kids. And we, we decided it was bees eat candy apples under some elephants. Okay. So you know, they have fun creating them. And when they do it, the sillier the better. Of course. Right. They so, remember it better. Exactly. And they can have a little mind movie or what they decide to help do it and, you know, get them to practice it, but also recognize you can't do this for every tricky word there is. Right. Exactly. So there are, there are other strategies that we need to support. Exactly. Right. And it's, it's about having, you know, it's fun. It's, it's like you said, the whole class if you have a class of 25 students and, you know, three or four students have been identified with dyslexia and maybe you have three or four students that have been identified as gifted, 
you still can use these strategies with the whole class. It doesn't have to be, you have to separate, you know, the kids by their academic skills to teach these, you know, all kids can benefit from them and have fun. So that, that kind of brings me to my fourth, you know, point is that the more engaged the students are, whether they have dyslexia or not, the faster they're going to retain the skills and they're going to retain them longer because they're fully involved. Their, you know, their bodies are involved. Their creative side of their mind is involved and they're engaged. And so that's going to help the students learn faster. And like I said, retain the information longer. Mm-hmm. So that's in, in these, you know, the wiki sticks or making a mnemonic that's not going to take days to do, you know, that, that may, may take an extra, you know, 10 or 15 minutes in your lesson, but it's, would you rather take the 10 or 15 minutes in one lesson to do something creative, or would you rather have to spend an extra 10 to 15 minutes every day for two weeks, trying to pound the information into the student's head your way in the way that, you know, you've been taught as, as a teacher, which again is not wrong. It's just we're learning as education evolves that that there are different strategies that students would benefit from and are more effective. So again, it's not that teachers are doing anything wrong. I don't want them to think that they're horrible teachers because that is not it at all. It's just a different, it's just a different technique, a different strategy to use. Well, and one thing that we need to recognize as teachers and educators, we're trying to promote the growth mindset in our students and develop the cognitive flexibility. So thinking about things from different perspectives. And it's important to stop and remind yourself that you need to have those elements in your own thinking and growth too. And recognizing that, you know, being an educator is being a lifelong learner because this field is constantly evolving and we're not teaching the same way that we taught things when my grandmother was a one room schoolhouse teacher on the prairies, right? Right. We know how to do it better. So we should do it better. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I went to a couple of schools that specialized in dyslexia as an individual with dyslexia. And on one of the schools that I went to, the first one that I went to, there was a logo on the wall that says, if you can't learn the way we teach, we'll teach the way you learn. Yes. You know, eventually they removed that um, because they they felt, some people felt that it was saying that you don't, we don't know how to teach. So, mm. but it, it's more, to me, it was saying, look, we're excellent teachers, but we understand there are going to be some individuals that we're going to have to go that extra step, that extra mile for. And do what we need to do and you know just like when we talk about things like adhd and autism being on a spectrum dyslexia is on a spectrum every school student has their individual strength and weakness profile and you need to recognize that understanding that profile is going to be your best way to understand how things are going to do and how to support that student mm-hmm Definitely. It's, 
it's it's hard to make the changes. It's really hard, especially if you've been in education a long time and you're hearing, well, now we need to do it this way. It's it's really hard. But the benefits outweigh, you know, the feelings of, well, I've always done it this way. And, you know, we none of us got into education for the money. You know, we all got into it to change students' lives and to teach them. And it's almost like an oath that we took to, you know, do what we need to do legally and to, you know, get students to be able to learn. So it's, um, you know, it, it advancing our own knowledge as teachers is important to kind of keep up to date on what's happening in some new techniques that are coming out or new philosophies. Um, you know, we know that every few years, you know, the pendulum swings back and forth between, you know, teach it this way and then no teach it this way and no, you know, goes back and forth. And so, you know, being a teacher, you need to be so flexible to, to incorporate, you know, to always be changing. And the, the benefit to, you know, a multi-sensory approach is that one, like you were saying, you know, dyslexia kind of has a range as, you know, you might have severe dyslexia, you might have some mild dyslexia or anything in between. And for those students, just because you're using magnet letters, for example, which is a great um, technique to use, that may not work for one student like it does another. Or hearing something read out loud may work for some students, but not other students. So the idea of incorporating multi-sensory is you're giving the students multiple ways to learn and multiple ways to, to retain the skill and they will retain it. They will learn it how they learn best. And so that's another advantage is giving them multiple opportunities besides, you know, we're going to read this story and then we're going to do a paper worksheet, answer questions about the story. So me as the teacher, so I can see what you've comprehended. So you're giving them different activities that engage them. They love them. You're, I have seen a reduced reduction in behaviors, like negative behaviors by starting with multi-sensory because the kids are engaged, they're having fun and they're learning the way that their brain needs to, to learn. So um, it, it's, it, it's so many advantages if you you know are willing to just step out of your comfort zone and try some of these things. And I know teachers are already doing, you know, a lot of different activities. You know, they have they have posters in their room and they may have a chant or a song or mnemonics that they use, or they may be using magnet letters. So they're already doing wonderful things in the classroom. It's just with multi, with multi-sensory teaching and with structured li literacy, you just have to purpose be purposeful about it and strategic about what activities you're picking to do with what skill you're teaching. So I, I hope that all makes <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> oh, I yeah, I, I feel it does. And, you know, one thing that I, I don't know if you talk about when you're talking to educators, but that I like to try and um, recognize is that dyslexia also has a lot of comorbidities. So yes. just because you're working with a dyslexic student doesn't mean that you're also not working with a student with autism or 
something like uh, developmental language disorder or um, dysgraphia, dyscalculia. So we need to look at the student as a whole and recognize that there are ways we need to support these children across a variety of subjects and recognizing that to do this, we're not, you know, the goal isn't to make things easier, right? We want these children to be learning the same content mm -hmm. as their peers but also have it so it um, is appropriate for what they they need. And we're not saying easier. We're saying do the same stuff, expect the same expectations, exactly. and recognize that there are alternative ways to show learning. Mm -hmm. And also when you are doing assignments, ask yourself, what the purpose of the assignment is, right? And recognize that you may be testing unintentionally other aspects at the same time. Sure. So make sure that when you are testing a certain skill, the student is doing activities that do it. And if it's a consequence of the assignment, but not the skill that you're after, then make sure that there are accommodations in place to help the support stu the student be supported during the process. So that's pretty wordy. And I'm going to break it down for what I mean in practice. And basically what I'm saying is that if you are doing an activity where you want to see if a student understands what is read to them or what what is being read then and you're really focusing on the comprehension questions and not too concerned about the actual act of reading then we want to give students the opportunity to ear read right and that means listening to the book now that doesn't mean we don't want to focus on teaching the student to become a better reader but we, we need to recognize that in this particular activity we just want to know if they understand what was read. And so let's give them, you know, a little bit less tasking of a task than to actually read it, read it to them, see if they understand it. You know, I bet that's going to be a lot better of an assessment. Uh, and also if they struggle with printing and writing, you know, scribe it for them, get them to dictate it. You, you know, we have so much technology that, makes things a lot easier than it was uh, in earlier decades. You know, use a voice to text feature so you can really understand what the individual knows instead of having them not use the words they want to use because they don't know how to spell them. Exactly. Um, yeah. And... You know, it's the same thing in math. If you have a student that struggles with the automaticity of math facts, mm -hmm. right? Knowing five plus five equals 10 isn't something that's just on the top of their head. They have to use their fingers and get them. But if we're doing more advanced math concepts and we, it, it's more understanding um, when we are doing, you know, large questions with caring, we don't want those little numbers to trip them up. We want to see the actual work. Right. 
and understanding that if they just use a calculator or have a, a chart or a multiplication um, table, you know, the little grid beside them so they can get it, that's going to help them show to you that they know the work, they know how to do the work. And it's not that they're tripping up on the little things that are too taxing on their working memory, but they can actually do the more difficult things. And we often see a fact fluency deficit for students with learning disabilities, but they have the ability to comprehend and compute the more difficult problems. I think you, you one of the words you said, easy, um, that we don't wanna make it easier for students. Um, we want to, I always say we want to level the playing field. Mm -hmm. So like you said, we're still teaching the same concepts, the same skills, but we're teaching it in a manner that gives the students a chance to learn the skills and learn how to incorporate their skills into their everyday learning, as well as across um, subjects. So you also, you know, hit on math that we're not, to, we don't need to just teach this way in reading class. You can teach these skills and these techniques in science class, in a history class at all different grade levels. And that's what I stress to teachers that I work with is it doesn't matter if you're teaching second grade reading, that's awesome, that's fine, these strategies will work. But if I have a teacher coming to me that teaches geometry, 10th grade geometry, and they're asking me for help, I'm telling them some of the same things because it carries over into other subject areas. And so, it just gives a student an opportunity to learn how they learn. It doesn't mean that you're making it easier for them or your expectations, like you said, aren't high as they are for everybody else. You're just acknowledging that they need a different teaching approach and that's what you're giving them. So you're you know, kind of leveling the, the playing field for them and giving them what they need to be successful. So the, the last, strategy, I don't know if it's really not really a strategy, but the last advice that I give to teachers is you need to be collecting data. You need to be collecting data like at the beginning of the school year to assess where your students are, what they already know and what they need to learn. You need to be collecting it, um, you know, definitely in the middle of the year and the end of the year so you can compare growth. I recommend doing it even a little bit more than that. You don't have to do a whole assessment every month, but you should frequently be doing some progress monitoring just to see where the students are. And there's a lot of different assessments out there to use. And, you know, basically you just want to find one that is, depending on the, in the grade level, but you want to find one that is focusing on phonemic awareness. Do they know the letters of sounds? And teachers are always surprised if they teach eighth or ninth grade that they still have students in their classes that don't know the sounds of letters. And so you want to, you know, the sounds of letters, can they blend those sounds together to make words? Can they read fluently? Can they rhyme? Can they take parts of the word apart or sounds of the word apart and tell you what word is left? Um, can they do some syllabication work? Can they read a story on their own and not make many errors? Can they read a story on their own and then retell, retell what the story was about? Or 
answer comprehension. So those type of real um, big assessments I give at the beginning of the year, the middle and the end. And then, like I said, if we're working on a skill for um, suffixes, for example, if I've just taught or I'm going to teach that, I might give just a real quick, you know, two to three question pretest on suffixes just to see where my students are at and where I know I need to go in my instruction. And then after I've taught that skill, then I'll give them a quick, you know, again, two or three question assessment to see, okay, did they understand the the skill that I taught? Have they mastered it? And the, and the key also with assessments in data collecting is you don't just teach something in, and think, great, they've mastered it. I'm going on and never return to it. You know, you're in reading, you're always learning or um, referring to skills that you've already learned, the stepping stones, the building blocks. And so it's not going to hurt the students to, if you taught how to identify syllables um, back in week two of school and you're in week 18 of school, it's not going to hurt to go back in and ask a couple, you know, questions or do a couple activities just to keep their students' minds referring to that information and so that they can keep using it as they become more fluent readers. So, you know, it's, it's, I, and I, again, I think most teachers do this where they, they ref, do review, they come back and review things. And I know a lot of, especially in the United States, we have the end of the year testing where, you know, the testing goes over everything that the student was supposed to learn that year. So mm -hmm. that's why it's good to keep everything, you know, past skills in the front of students' mind to, you know, keep it fresh for them so they don't forget it. Definitely. And recognizing that when we're talking about literacy skills, build on skills, and we need to support the students' learning across subjects, mm -hmm. recognizing that even though we're doing social studies or science or history or whatever else you may be teaching mathematics, there are still things that we need to explicitly teach students to help support their reading and comprehension in those skills. The way you approach a narrative text is very different than you approach a scientific text versus a history one. You know, when you're looking at a historical text, we want to talk about biases and perspectives and, you know, the different sides within what's being reported. Whereas when we're looking at science, we, we don't need to question it at the same way, but we need to understand how to take the information we need from a scientific text. Right. Mm -hmm. Or if we're conducting an experiment, we don't need to consider the mood, the lighting, the setting, right? The plot. <laughs> we just need to read it, take the steps at face value and not be like, what do you think they really meant this instead of that? Oh, we're making this um experiment and you know i'm gonna i'm gonna tweak the ingredients a little bit well no we're not doing that because that could have catastrophic results it's not like oh i don't have this um liquid so i'm gonna use this liquid instead no don't use bleach instead of water or vinegar right. or something like that <laughs> it's going to have impacts 
And mm-hmm. then rec, you know, making sure that you you teach those comprehension strategies explicitly. Um, I remember I learned a, a great problem solving technique in grade six from one of my teachers. And it worked great for word problems. It really helped us figure out what pieces of information we needed to take out of the problem and then understand how to approach solving it. And Mm. this is a strategy that I literally used all the way through my education. I remember using it in my advanced statistical analyses courses during my PhD. And when we have good strategies and we, we teach it So it becomes a skill rather than a strategy and the individual uses it unconsciously. That's, that's the dream. That's the goal having it. So they're no longer thinking about it. It's so well learned. It's habitual. Right. And that can happen. It does happen. Mm -hmm. And taking the time to find what works Another strategy that uh, you know a lot of individuals talk about when we're looking with individuals with learning disability is working on graphic organizers. Mm. And yes. one thing we need to recognize is that there needs to be some flexibility in the graphic organizers that are used because they don't all work well for every student. Mm-hmm. True, that is true. Yeah. Do you have any other strategies that are your go-to strategies or um, advice that you think teachers should go to or follow? Sure. I have a ton. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you do. Um, I mentioned wiki sticks. That's a go-to that I go to a lot because all my students love wiki sticks. Um, The other and I just want to go to that sort of thing. So when we're talking about wiki sticks or some of the other like sensory tools for supporting reading development or engagement with students, mm-hmm. to help learn those skills, the actual use of the material is not the thing that's promoting the learning so much as keeping the individuals focused and on task. during the step right so and it's having that explicit repeated instruction when we're looking at students with learning disabilities uh in reading there's a problem with the students remembering what the word is so it technically it's considered orthographically mapping the word or putting the word in the sight word vocabulary so that they can read it effortlessly within a fraction of a second now In order to do that, there needs to be several exposures and repetitions. Some students, it's a hundred, some students, it's thousands of times before it reaches automaticity. So instead of saying, okay, what's this word? What's this word? You know, doing flashcards over and over and over again, drilling it in, we're trying to approach the word in different ways to keep the individual's attention focused and developing that word mm-hmm. knowledge and word awareness so it, it's it's a tool it's a strategy but it's not we're not saying that if you don't write in shaving cream the student's not going to learn how to read correct 
yeah, it's not the actual material that makes the difference. It's the uh, what you do with the material. So it's the, you know, using your finger to trace over it or right in the air or seeing it, saying it, um, feeling it, manipulating it. Those are the actions that are actually ingraining the skill into the brain for easy mm -hmm. retrieval. So you're right. It's not wiki sticks. Wiki sticks are not like a magic wand that if you give students wiki sticks, they're going to get the skill. You know, it's not the material. It's the the engagement and the action that they're doing with it. So that's why with wiki sticks, I have them, you know, trace over the letters and say the sounds, and then they have to read the whole word. And there's, again, they're seeing it, they're touching it, they're hearing it, and just using a lot of different senses. The more senses you can involve in one um, activity, the more likely the chances are, are better that the students are going to retain the information and it's going to be easily to be rich easily retrievable um, later on. So wiki sticks are one. Another popular one is um, just air writing. Just have students, you know, like cats and you know, make the letters in the air. They're feeling it, they're in essence seeing it, they're hearing it. Um, and I've had students before even with wiki sticks or magnet letters or something else that, you know, I've used a sand, sand tray or something um, to have students write words in or letters for sounds. I will see them on the table, on their desk, just you, make, making the movements with their fingers to help remind them. It's not that they're, they have the wiki stick or they have the sand in front of them, but they just remember that movement. And so that helps them uh, with the you know, whatever skill that they're working on, it helps them, you know, get that. Um, another popular one are the um, poppets, those mm, like yeah. silicone, you know, they're like bubbles and you can buy some of those that actually have letters on them. And so I have a bunch of those and this, I'll say to a student, um, you know, find the, find the bubble that makes the t sound. And so they push down the T. Um, and so those are fun to do. You can actually get some puppets that don't have letters on them and they start in the top left-hand corner and you might give them a word like dog and they push the first button down and say D and then quickly touch the second one and push it down and say ah and then the third one and say G. And then even though the letters are not written there, I still have them run their fingers from left to right under the the bubbles that they've pushed down and say the whole word dog. Um, so they love to do that. You mentioned shaving cream. Um, just a just a hint here from experience, make sure it's not scented shaving cream because then your classroom, um, it smells good, but it's a little overpowering. So always use unscented. You can use sand, rice, beans, um, Orbeez um, are good to put like on a tray. Um, I've used very gentle, I don't know the exact term for it, but like sandpaper. So it's a very, you know, they're not, you know, scraping their finger on the sandpaper. Um, we've used magnet letters, whiteboards um, for sentences. I maybe have taken a sentence out of a reading that they're doing that maybe has 
It might be a sentence that keeps tricking them, keeps tripping them up, might have some difficult words in there. And so I type the sentence out and then cut the pieces apart so that one word is on a piece of paper, mix the papers up, and then they have to put the papers in order so the sentence makes sense. And then they glue it on a sentence strip or piece of paper. And we go over, we read it over and over and over again um, until they they have it. They've re they're reading it fluently. Then we go back into the book um, and read the story. With comprehension, my students love to, I, I've mentioned before, instead of giving students a piece of paper and a pencil with questions to answer about a text they've read, be um, open for other ways that they can demonstrate that they have comprehended the information. And this is where it might take an extra, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, a lesson to allow the students time to do this. But you give them opportunities to, maybe they want to make a mnemonic. Maybe they want to write a paragraph. Maybe they want to um, make draw a picture about, you know, what happened in the story. Maybe they want to write a song or they want to create a skit or, um, I mean, a, a poem. They're just endless ideas. I've had students construct things with Legos or out of a box, create things. And again, that takes more time. But in the long run, it's more effective because you're giving those students equal opportunity to show that they do understand what has happened in the text, but you're letting them do it in their own way, their own way of learning. Um, a lot of songs, uh, you know, we have the ABC song, um, but, you know, just other songs that they're all over YouTube that you can find. I know Jack Hartman has a ton of songs that go for different skills, um, even math skills and bringing in song. Um, there's just uh, so many, so many things out there um, that you can use and different for older students, different types of uh, note-taking techniques. So one is, you know, KWL chart. I know you mentioned um, graphic organizers, you know, what you already know, what you want to know, what you want to learn or what you have learned, um, giving them those or Venn diagrams. Um, one activity I did with some fourth grade students and was a big hit was uh, on the lines of comprehension, we were reading a chapter book and I knew ahead of time that the students had difficulty with comprehension and that they would be able to read the book. But if I got to the end of the book and said, okay, tell me what this whole book was about, they were only going to pretty much tell me what happened in the last chapter because that's what they remembered the most. So what we did was after we would read, we started out with a page. After we read one page, we took a sticky note, a post-it note, and just wrote down one sentence about what happened on that page. And we stuck it on that page. And we did that for, I mean, this book had 10 chapters, I think. So we did it maybe for the first three chapters like that. Then chapters like four through six, we did it for um, the whole chapter. So what was the chapter about? And so we you know, wrote some ideas down. And then at the end, instead of having them have to go back and reread chapters or whole pages, they just looked at their post-it notes and they still were able to come up with um, a retelling or a drawing or um, 
a song about the book just by using the post-it notes. So just referring to the post-it notes. So there's a lot of, um, a lot of things out there. A lot of, uh, I know, I know a lot of teachers are using a lot of great resources and that's, you know, that's, that's awesome. That's what we want. We just want to make sure that not only are we using like magnet letters, for example, and, and having them move the magnet letters to spell a word, but we're having them touch the magnet letters so they can feel the formation of the letters. We're having them say it. So they're using more than one or two um, senses. And by doing that, it really does ingrain it in their brains. So they have more success when they need to retrieve skills or when they need to retrieve words or sight words um, by doing it in this fashion than just writing it on the piece of paper. Um, you know, typically a student with dyslexia is not going to have great success remembering how to spell words if you have them write them three times each, you know, on a piece of paper. Um, so allow them to do some other you know, other activities that can help them learn those words besides just, you know, as, as, you know, for homework tonight, go write your spelling words three times each on this paper. That's not, you know, that's not what they need. That's not necessarily going to help them. So just being creative, being willing to spend some more time on this, knowing that you're spending the time now to help these students learn these skills and strategies that they're going to be able to learn or to keep and remember and refer to throughout their schooling career and their lifetime. So if you take the time now to do it, it's going to be so worth it. And you're going to have more success. Your students are going to have more success by just taking, you know, a little bit of extra time now, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's two things that I don't think we've spoken enough about yet when we're, we're working with dyslexic students and individuals with learning disabilities. One is making sure that they develop their printing and or handwriting to a fluent level. One of the things that I do when I am working with clients privately is ask, I, I sit in front of them with a lined piece of paper and I ask them to write their name and the alphabet and seeing how long it takes them, how they form their letters and mm. how easy it is for them to do so. When we're working with students that are still having so many troubles, just writing out the alphabet, mm -hmm. it's giving us information about how taxing it is for them to actually spell words. Cause in addition to trying to remember how the word is spelt, they are having to remember how the letter is formed and, you know, doing that motor planning to actually form the letter. And that's where some students that have really big difficulties in this move to using the computer because it's easier for them to type and know where the letter is on a keyboard than it is for them to actually form the letter themselves. And when we're talking about, you know, working memory and how they have to do these things, the the time is of the essence when we're in a classroom having to take notes and any strategies that we can give students to do this in an effective manner so they can keep up with their peers and what is being said within the classroom is really important. A lot 
of individuals with dyslexia or not a lot, but one of the skills that some dyslexic has is their artistic nature and ability to draw and sketch. So one thing I like doing with individuals who do have this talent, enjoy drawing, is teaching them about graphic note-taking because, you know, they say, I guess it's an old cliche, the picture's worth a thousand words. So if they can do a little doodle or a sketch that helps them understand it better than writing down a bunch of words that are, is more time consuming for them, it's, it's very beneficial. And there, there are great YouTube videos online about how to graphic note take, right? Or, um, you're drawing little cartoons as you go along and just adding, you know, some words here or there and it can make a huge difference. Yeah, that's a great point. Just even allowing students while you're teaching to be drawing or doodling. Um, I know some teachers want, you know, students to just be listening to them and not doing anything, but actively doing that while a teacher is teaching, that's, you know, that's huge. That's, that's great to, um, to be able to use, to do that while the teacher's teaching as, because they they really are, well, hopefully, you know, paying attention to what the teacher's saying. Um, they're just taking notes in a different, you know, fashion. And that really, you know, can help them. Another way with note-taking is, um, you know, if it, again, this, this takes a, you know, a few extra minutes on the teacher's part, but for the teacher to type out the notes and leave some words blank. So it might be a vocabulary word that they leave blank or, you know, a couple words in a sentence so that the student still has to be listening and paying attention, but they don't have to be writing everything out that the teacher is wanting them to write out. So they just kind of fill in the blank. Or if the teacher gives them all the notes and they have to highlight certain words just so that they're they're focused, they're paying attention, they're keeping up. But again, they're not having to exert so much energy and and um, use their brain so much to have to be doing the act of writing. So yeah, those are those are great. Um, yeah, writing is definitely important. And just doing doing things, you're you're doing things on purpose. There's, there's a reason why you're doing these things. It's not busy work or, mm -hmm. um, you know, to, to kill time. It's, you know, you're really strategically thinking, what can I use or how can I help my students learn? So hopefully that gives some ideas. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Jennifer. I really enjoyed you're our welcome. conversation about some of the strategies that you recommend for teachers working with students with dyslexia and you know it really is that journey of learning understand how we can better support these students right. and recognizing that we're going to continually do this and mm -hmm. you know even if you've been doing this for decades there's going to be that student that comes to you like huh how can I make it so this works better for you? And mm -hmm. it's the answer isn't just to write the students off. Oh, the answer yeah. is to figure it out and recognize the individual's unique profile 
limitations and strengths and weaknesses. Exactly. Um, and that takes some time. That takes some time to do, but it's well worth it. Definitely. Yeah. All right. Thank you for our chat today, Jennifer. Thank you.